that injustice grieves the heart of God. Now, if I did not believe that, I would quit the ministry. Because that is one of the foundational bedrock truths of our faith. That God is a God who is grieved when injustice occurs. But now let me put this up on the screen and ask you, does this cause us to question that statement? I don't really have to give an explanation for this. We all know that these men were Coptic Christians who were brutally murdered for their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know Christians have it hard in Egypt? If you are a believer in Egypt, you cannot get a government job. You can't serve in the military. And these men paid the ultimate price for their faith in Jesus by being murdered by ISIS. These men are were fathers, husbands, sons, brothers. And I thought to myself, if I were the pastor of their families, what would I say to them? How would I comfort their families? If God's heart is grieved, why did He not take action? Isn't this one of the most persistent questions that we face as Christians? We believe injustice grieves the heart of God, but we do not always see Him taking action. If you are here today and you have never been treated unjustly, If you live long enough, you very likely will. Let me ask some of these questions, and I know for some of us what the answers would be. Have you ever been ripped off financially? Have you ever had friends or family who turned away from you or against you? Have you ever been fired or demoted because of unfair expectations? Have you ever been blamed for things that are not your fault by people who did not have all the facts? Ever been mistreated, abused, wounded, rejected, or misrepresented? If we could open up the microphones today just to our congregations in the first and second service, the stories we could tell would fill a book. I have no question about that. Now the only way for us to handle mistreatment or injustice and to keep our faith is if we really do believe that injustice grieves the heart of God. This morning as we come to James chapter 5, the last chapter in our study of James, The pastoral heart of James becomes revealed. And there were people in his congregation who were struggling, who were suffering. And James goes from really sort of challenging us with the issues of pride and our tongue and grumbling and all of that, and he now begins in pastoral concern to encourage people who are hurting. 
And this morning, as we look at God's Word, we're going to bring a message entitled, How to Handle Unjust Treatment. Now, there's a little principle that James is going to flesh out for us. And I wonder if we could read it today, because it makes all the difference when mistreatment comes our way. Let's read it together. Who Jesus is and what He does strengthens our trust when injustice strikes. Let's bow for just a moment and ask the Lord to be our teacher. Father, today in our midst, we are fully aware that we live in an unjust and an unfair world. And Lord, we believe that it grieves your heart Sometimes we have questions. Why doesn't God act? Why doesn't He make right all the wrongs around us and the wrongs that have happened to us? And we thank You, Father, that Your Word has an answer. It gives us a hope for the God that we trust and believe in and follow. And I pray today that you will encourage our faith as we learn about our Savior and what He does for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 5. And I want to begin reading verses 1 through 6 as we paint the historical background. Now it's a blessing for me this morning to say, if you would like to follow along, turn in your pew Bible to page 1201. And uh, you may follow along. We will be dedicating those Bibles in a subsequent service. And so I'm so grateful for the generosity of those who have made those possible. Listen to what James says. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now what James is describing here as a matter of historical record was occurring in the first century in Israel. And there were people in his church who experienced the very things that he describes here. Let me paint the background. Wealthy Jewish landowners had bought up much of the land from peasant farmers. People had lost their jobs. Uh, Some businesses had been boycotted. And some that James was writing to were destitute. For many, the only recourse was to hire on as farm hands. And as in the Great Depression, you worked for what you could get. 
So the wages were low to begin with, but then the wealthy landowners cheated their workers. Much like in the Old South, the owners lived in mansions, while the workers lived in shacks. And when they tried to get redress in the courts, the owners used their money to bribe the justices and to control the judges. Some innocent people had actually been condemned with trumped-up charges, and as we read here, some had even been murdered. And then like Ahab in the Old Testament, when Naboth was dead and out of the way, they moved on to the land and they took it over. Now I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these poor believers. Some would never get their land back. They would never recover their wages. For those who had had family members who were murdered, they would never see their father or their husband again. We can just begin to start to imagine the hurt, the pain, the heartache, the anger, the frustration, and the despair that these people felt who had put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, your elder James and the early church in Jerusalem, you're a pastor to these people. How do you encourage them that this injustice grieves the heart of God? Well, that's what James does. And so let's look and see how his pastoral ministry to hurting people encourages their hearts and ours. Let's notice what he teaches us, all right? To begin with, James teaches us that Jesus is a commander who hears. He is a great and mighty commander who hears. And therefore, we should be prayerful. Look with me at verse 4. Notice what it says. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now these believers did what their Old Testament ancestors did. James says their cry reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now these are rich, rich images from the Old Testament. Cries here was used of a cry for justice by those who are abused. You may remember that God came to Cain after he had murdered Abel. And he said, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. The cry here was used of a fervent plea to God to see a wrong corrected. It's interesting that he uses this amazing statement that we find in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts, or literally the Lord of armies. It was an Old Testament expression that referred to God as the commander of the angelic armies of heaven. Do you remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives? And he was being arrested. 
And Peter drew a sword and was going to fight on his behalf. And Jesus said, put away that sword. Don't you know, I could call on my father who would immediately send me 12 legions of angels. That's the imagery here of this Lord of hosts. It is descriptive of somebody who has overwhelming power. It is a reference to somebody whose power is over all, who is almighty, as we sang in that opening song, who is all-powerful. Now, there's a wonderful image here for us. For the cries of abused believers to reach the commander of heaven means he is going to act. He is going to act. It is not a matter of if he will act, but it is a matter of when He will act. You know, one marvelous example of this is when Jesus was on the cross. The Bible tells us that in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, He took to His lips Psalm 22, 1 and 2. And in his human nature, feeling abused and rejected and mistreated, he cried out in these words. Let's read them together because they are so familiar to us from Psalm 22, 1 and 2. And notice the very same words that James uses for the believers of his day, Jesus took on his lips as he cried out to God. Let's read them together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I do not find rest. By the way, did God answer that prayer for Jesus? Did he? Three days later, he did, didn't he? And the same one who cried out in anguish and in pain and rejection was resurrected. Later in the psalm, in verse 24, the psalmist anticipating Christ says, He has heard. He has heard. May I say to us today, If the commander of the armies of heaven can answer Jesus with a resurrection from a cold, sealed tomb, what can that same commander do for you and me who cry out to him day and night in our pain and hurt, right? That's exactly the point. See, he's a commander. He hears. And we are to pray. Secondly, James tells us that Jesus is a king who is coming, and therefore we are to be patient. We are to be patient. Look at verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. 
Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now the word coming here that James uses twice was used in the ancient world of the visit of a king to a city in his kingdom, and so it depicts Jesus as a royal king. Now you know what would happen. When the king came, the army of the king came with him. And if the city was under siege from enemies, the king and his army would attack the enemies and they would deliver the city that belonged to the people, to the king and the people inside. So what we are learning here is this, the commander of the armies who hears in heaven is the king who is coming to deliver us. And so because that is true, he says we have to be patient. We have to be patient. Do you know this is a very interesting word in the original language? It is made up of two words, long plus temper. Long plus temper. And it means to set the timer <clears throat> of one's temper for a long run. It wasn't a great last night to set the timer for a long run and get that extra hour of sleep. This word patient means to have a long fuse. It describes the self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate a wrong. So he is saying we are to be patient and not retaliate or take revenge. But while we're crying out to God, we are to wait for the Lord to come. It's been a long wait, hasn't it? It's been over 2,000 years. And sometimes we wonder, why is it that the return of the Lord to deal with all this injustice takes so long? Do you know this verse gives the answer? Look at it. Notice he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. Why is Jesus taking so long to return? The answer is found in the lesson of the farmer. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about agriculture in ancient Israel. The early rains came in October and November. And those rains would soften the soil so that the seed could be planted and begin to sprout. The late rains, they didn't come till April and May. And those rains were essential because they ensured the ripening of the harvest. Now, you know what? That's a long growing season, isn't it? That's a sixth to seventh month long growing season. And the farmer has to wait patiently for those rains. Uh, by the way, uh, we here in the UP have a little idea of how long that is, right? Winter starts in November, doesn't end six months later till April, and then when it's over, the bug season begins, and so we understand all about patience and waiting. But did you know for those farmers, it was a weight of hardship? 
During those six or seven months, there could be rations, hunger for the family. But no matter how hard the deprivations, the farmer could not speed up the growing season. He had to wait expectantly and patiently because he knew his life and the life of his family depended upon the harvest. Now Jesus' first and second comings are like the two rains. There is a long delay in between involving hardship and evil. And the Bible teaches that God is a patient God. He is enduring evil, delaying the day of judgment. That's why it takes so long. Do you know what? I I want Jesus to come. If He came tomorrow, as far as I was concerned, that would be wonderful for me. But I have to be very honest. I have mixed feelings. See, I have friends and family that I love that I want to be saved. And if I have to suffer injustice uh, for a little longer so that somebody that I love can be saved, I'd have to say I'm willing to wait. You see, God lets us wait and suffer evil so that we might show His love and patience to evil people. That's why in verse 8 He says, Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. During this time when you may experience injustice and, and mistreatment, let God continue to do hard work on you, so that you can show His love and patience to people who yet need to trust in Jesus. Watchman Nee, who was a, uh, a wonderful evangelist in, in China, told about a, a Chinese farmer who had to do this very thing. Uh, in the mountains of China, there are these rice paddies that are in steps. And they are one above another with lower farmers down lower on the mountain. And this uh, peasant farmer, many, many years ago, when Watchman Nee was still alive, had a farm that was a little further up the mountain. And every day he would fill his paddies with water. And then the next day, when he would come back in the morning, he would discover that the unbelieving farmer down below had opened the dikes, drained out all of the water to fill his paddies. And at first, this believing peasant farmer just put up with the injustice. But then he began to realize, if I allow this to go on more and more and more, my rice is not going to grow, and my family is going to be in jeopardy, and so what do I do? Watchman Nee said he got together with the church that was there that he was a part of to pray and decide what to do. And this is what the congregation decided he ought to do. They told him, get up earlier in the morning and fill the patties of your neighbor's farm first. And then fill Doesn't that sound like our God? 
Doesn't that sound like Jesus? Do you know what happened because of that? Those two farmers became friends. And that unbelieving farmer wanted to hear about a God who could cause a man to return such good for evil. And within time, there were two Christian farmers. Can I drop a little practical tidbit in here for us? We are most like God when we are patient when provoked. We are most like God when we are patient when provoked. That's how we are to live in the midst of this injustice. Now look thirdly. Thirdly, James comforts us this way by saying Jesus is a judge who is standing So be positive. Look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now in a hostile world in which believers are under duress, the last thing we need to be doing is complaining against one another. We need each other's support and each other's encouragement. And you know what destroys that? Complaining does. Complaining about each other. This word grumble is a very interesting word. It means to sigh or to groan. It actually denotes feeling that is internal and unexpressed. It refers to the grudge that is kept within that simmers and then is expressed in complaining. Now, did you see the reason why we ought not to be that way? Holding grudges against each other? Complaining about one another? God, forgive us as your people. The reason we are not to do that is James says in verse 9, that the judge, who is Jesus, is standing at the door. Now, let that sink in for a moment. The Bible usually says that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. If He is standing, what that means is, He is getting ready to come. Now, I have to say something to you. If He was ready when James was written... How much closer is he now? Right? Uh, let me give you something that to me is, is very helpful. Let's imagine that this compressed yardstick represents all of time from creation to the second coming. So here on the timeline, we have the first coming of Christ, and we are waiting for the second coming. 
Now, James was written about 46 A.D. It was the first book of the New Testament ever written of all 27. And if it was written uh, that early at 46 A.D., that is less than 20 years since Jesus had gone back to heaven. And James says, 20 years after Jesus had left, that Jesus is standing at the door. Now, you know what it means if you're expecting somebody to come to your house and they are standing at the door. They are very close to walking through. And if Jesus was standing at the door in 46 A.D. ready to come through, how much closer is He today? I say to you, I don't want to be bitter at anyone in this church. I don't want to be complaining. I don't want my Savior to come and find me doing the devil's work when I'm called to do Jesus' work. Do you see? The judge is standing at the door. Be positive. Finally, James comforts us by telling us Jesus is a rewarder who is preparing. Be persevering. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now we all know the story of Job. After he endured all of his trials, God gave to him a double blessing. Go sometime to Job 42, and God gave him twice of what he had when the book began. You know what that tells us? God had a plan. After Job's testing, he was rewarded, and God has the same plan for you and I if we will persevere in the midst of the hurts that we experience. All of us know that the Chicago Cubs this week won the World Series. You knew I was going to get that in somehow, didn't you? Eleven years ago, their South Side counterparts, the Chicago White Sox, won the World Series after a long drought as well. After that series, their manager, Ozzie Guillen, was interviewed. And somehow in the interview, the subject of heaven came up. Listen to what Ozzie Guillen said. Who comes up with that stuff? I'd like to talk to somebody who is dead and say, where are you? I just think that after you die, they pour a lot of dirt. You know what Ozzie Guillen said his heaven is? Sitting in his boat on blue water with a scotch in his 
That's his heaven. Who comes up with this stuff? Is that what we're doing today? Is this stuff that we have somehow come up with? Is that what this is? Let me just put this together here this morning. If there is a commander, a king, and a judge, then there must be a rewarder who is preparing. Is that not true? If there is a commander, a king, and a judge, then there must be a rewarder who is preparing. And if we are prayerful, patient, positive, and persevering, we are going to be blessed. We are going to be blessed. And that's how we comfort each other in injustice. There is a commander... There is a king, there is a judge, and there is a rewarder, and he is preparing. And if we will be prayerful and cry out to him, be patient and not complain, if we will be positive and represent him well in his church that he has made us a part of and persevere, just as Job was blessed, So we will be blessed. That's the way we handle injustice. As I conclude this morning, let me just draw some observations that that I've thought about and that I think might help you when mistreatment strikes. Here they are. When, min- when mistreatment strikes, first of all, your rights. Use the legal protections that God has provided. That's what they are there for. Sometimes people will come to me and they're being abused by the legal system uh, or somebody is seeking to abuse them, and they'll ask me, Pastor, is, is it all right for me to seek justice against that person? And the answer is, sometimes yes it is. The legal system is there for our protection. And if we have the opportunity, and it's the right thing to do, we can use it. Second, your heart. Do not become personally vengeful or bitter. That's the great danger. The great danger is that we become hostile, bitter, resentful in our attempt to right the wrong. And that is never right for a Christian. So cry out to God, And give Him your pain. Number three, your Christianity. Do not quit letting others rob you of your reward. My heart breaks for people that were active Christians who are now on the sideline because some injustice happened, maybe at the hands of other Christians, and now they're bitter. 
And the rewards they could have had for faithfully serving the Lord, they will lose in heaven. And they've allowed someone on earth not only to hurt them on earth, but to rob them in heaven. Don't allow that to happen to you. I knew of a pastor who became so bitter at his church that one day he backed up his pickup truck to his office. He took all of the books off of his library, threw them in a heap on the back of his pickup truck, drove down to the dump, and emptied them in the dump. He was done with it all. And what a sad, sad outcome. He allowed the hurts that he experienced to rob him of eternal rewards. Don't do that. And then finally, your eternity. eternity. Get ready to enjoy. God will repay you many, many fold. And so as we think about how to comfort each other, let's ask the Lord to give us His perspective as we wait upon Him. Would you bow prayer with me?